Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. Well, this morning we are talking about how Jesus makes us holy. I'm going to have to define holy in a little while, but I want to illustrate it this way. July 9th, 2005, 16 years ago, July 9th, 2005 is the last morning that I woke up single. By that afternoon, I was a husband. I woke up July 9th, 2005 in Meadville, Pennsylvania, the the familiar smell of the open-air sewage plant wafting through the town mixed with the smell of the dog food factory made for a wonderful wedding day in Meadville, Pennsylvania. Uh, I think our wedding was at 11 a.m. at Meadville Alliance Church uh, for Kendra and I. And uh, we got there early, and we're, you know, every, we're getting ready. Uh, my, the groomsmen and I are getting ready in the basement, and Kendra's getting ready at her family's house. And ceremony was at 11 o'clock. By noon, we were married. It was done. It is finished. To tell us die. The debt has been paid. I received my dowry from her family. Just kidding. We don't do dowries. I wish we did. Uh, I, would, I could go for some goats or some cows or some sheep or something like that. But uh, we were married. I woke up that morning not a husband. By dinner time, I was a husband. Something in my identity had changed. Your identity, uh, you know, your identity is multifaceted, but it, it's often ident- uh, you get your identity by how you relate to people in some ways. So, for instance, I am a son. I am a brother. I'm a father. These are all part of my identity, and, and these aspects of my identity are how I relate to other people. I am also a husband. I was not a husband that morning, but I was a husband by the afternoon. Because I had a shift in my identity, there were ripple effects of that. You know, that, that change in my identity resulted in a legal change. You know, if, if I were to die, all of a sudden, everything I have goes to this, this woman that I've yoked myself to. I file my taxes differently because of this. The government looks at me differently. Society looks at me differently than they did that morning because of this relationship that I've entered into, because of this covenant that I made. You understand where I'm going with this? Like all of a sudden, because of this covenant, because just in a a few moments, I went from being single and having uh, one type of status to being married and having a different type of status, not to say one is better than the other, just simply that they're distinct and different, uh, and things changed. Further, the expectations and obligations and responsibilities that I had changed immediately. The things that you can do when you're single are very different than the things that you can do when you're married. And I'll choose some more vanilla examples, but for instance, I can't just go wherever I want without telling anyone. I could on July 8th, but on July 9th, now I have to share with my wife my whereabouts. I can't just spend money however I want and not have to answer for anything. Now I answer for everything, everything. But you know, like all of a sudden on July 9th, 2005, expectations changed. My identity changed. That led to behaviors changing. Does that make sense? Everybody got that? 
Couldn't work super duper long hours. That was one of the first lessons we learned when we got back from our honeymoon and settled into our apartment in suburban New York, right outside of New York City. The hours that I was working before we were married, I couldn't work those hours anymore. I went to go to work one night and my wife was crying and I had to call the pastor, the, the lead pastor, because I was the assistant pastor, and say, I don't think I can come to this board meeting because uh, uh, my wife thinks I go to church too much. Thankfully, that pastor understood that, understood we were newly married, understood what it was like, and let me stay home that night. But all sorts of things started to change. Things that were okay when I was single weren't okay when I was married. And I mean actually okay. Things that were morally and still like a believer could do when they're single, couldn't do when you're married. When I woke up on July 9th, my identity changed. It led to a change in behaviors. Now that I was married and not single, my behaviors had to match my identity. On the flip side of that, I related to my husband at, uh, sorry, boy, 2021. I related to my wife as her husband, her only husband. If some other man attempted to relate to her as if he was her husband, it's back to prison for me, right? Another 10 years. Some of you are wondering because you don't know me well enough. Okay. There was an identity change, there was a behavior change, and then also there was a sense of this is the only person that I'm in this relationship with and I'm the only person that she is in this relationship with. A lot of stuff changed because of this covenant that was made. So as we read through the New Testament and we get to words like saint and sinner and sanctification and holiness, here's what I want you to see. Saint is to spouse as sanctification is to marriage. Saint is the person. Uh, sanctification is the institution. It's the moment in time, but also the lifelong experience that we have, just like a marriage, right? I, last week I did a wedding, and I reminded them of all the energy and time that went into the wedding. It's all going to be done by the end of the day. You're going to have to figure out for the rest of your life what it means to be married, and obviously, as, as a pastor, I try to put a greater emphasis on the marriage than the wedding, because the marriage is every day after, whereas the wedding is one day. So saint is to spouse, as sanctification is to marriage. What does sanctification mean? Sanctification means to be made holy. Uh, one of the ways that we understand holiness, and you've probably heard this many, many times, but you probably have some dishes in your house or maybe some silverware that's special, right? Set aside for a special occasion. We have that in our house. We have these dishes that we got for our wedding. They're like fancy and, and we just use them like on Thanksgiving and Christmas and when we have like, you know, fancy people over. So if we ever serve you on paper plates, that's kind of what we think of you, I guess. Uh, so we have nice plates, we have our common plates, and then we have paper plates, okay? The nice plates get used two, three times a year. We have these common plates that we use on a regular basis. Paper plates is when we're really too lazy to do the dishes, okay? Holiness is like those uh, special plates that get set aside, they are set aside for a special purpose. You probably have clothing in your closet that's set aside for special purposes, right? 
suits or dresses or certain things that you maybe wear to a wedding or to your court date. And, uh, you know, these are set aside for a special... <laughs> Too many people know exactly what I'm getting at here. Uh, certain clothing certain dishes, maybe a certain room in your house. You might even have a couch that the dog can't get on. These are things that are set aside for a special purpose. That's what it is to be holy. That is God saying, I picked you and I'm setting you aside for a special purpose. You're not common. You're holy. You have a significant, special purpose. And he, he has selected followers of Jesus, the church, to make them holy and to set them aside, not for common things, but for unique things. Is this all making sense to you? Because I want to talk to you about holiness and sanctification and how this works for us. Jesus is the one that makes us holy. We do not make ourselves holy. Jesus makes us holy. This is part of his ministry to and through us is to make us holy. He saves us, he heals us, he's returning, but he also sanctifies us. He is our sanctifier. He is the one that sets us aside and makes us holy. We cannot do this for ourselves, but we do cooperate with the process, or at least we should cooperate with the process of Jesus making us holy. You can either cooperate or you can resist it. About a month ago, most of you know this, about a month ago I had my gallbladder removed. I could not do that for myself. I had a sickness in me. I had something that was sick and inflamed and it was causing problems in me. As much as I would have loved to have removed it myself, I couldn't remove it myself. I needed someone else to remove it for me. All I could do was cooperate. All I could do was follow the instructions that the surgeon gave me about don't eat anything or drink anything the night before, don't bring anything extra to the hospital, make sure someone's going to pick you up. You know, there were instructions he gave that I was able to cooperate with, but when, the, when it came down to it, I could not do this for myself. I could have resisted. I could have gone kicking and screaming, and I vaguely remember a little bit of that before I fully went under the anesthesia. I remember two, it took two people to get the thing down on me because I was like, get it. So I, I don't know what was going on in that moment, but you can cooperate or you can resist with Jesus' sanctifying work in you. Ultimately, he's the one that's going in and removing the sickness. But you, can, you cooperate, so you do participate in this process, but it's not something you can do to yourself. We're going to look in 1 Corinthians, two different places, as well as the spot in 1 Thessalonians here today to, to learn about how Jesus makes us holy. The, first is, uh, the second verse of 1 Corinthians, very clear that being made holy changes our identity. Just like you know, getting married or having a child changes you. I, I wasn't a dad until August 30th, 2010, which I think is Aiden's birthday. That's when I became a dad. I wasn't a dad the day before that, but all of a sudden I became a dad. I wasn't a husband before July 9, 2005, but then all of a sudden I was a husband. Jesus changes our identity when he makes us holy. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, just a very simple verse. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. He uses three different ways to identify the Christians in the city of Corinth, this is a city in Greece. He calls them, number one, the church of God. That word church, I want you to think of like 
a governmental term, ecclesia, it's, it's, think of like the governing board or the city council of God, okay? These are, these are people that rule or govern on behalf of God who have been called out and singled out. He calls them the church of God. We know that in the rest of the New Testament, the church is referred to as the body of Jesus or the bride of Jesus, He also says that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus, and he identifies them as saints by calling. So it's the church, the the ecclesia, the the governing body of God. They are sanctified. They're made holy in Jesus. I mean, we're only two verses into the book of 1 Corinthians, and he's saying that they're sanctified, and he calls them saints by calling. Now, I like this saints word. Uh, It's used 60 times in the New Testament to refer to Christians, the word saints, Saints as opposed to sinners. I could not find, with the exception of one place in James, I could not find a passage in the New Testament where Paul or Jesus referred to the followers of Jesus as sinners. The Pharisees called them sinners. Usually sinner is a word that's reserved for people who are not followers of Jesus or people before they were followers of Jesus. Does that make sense? But every time we're talking about followers of Jesus, we get to saints. Now, there's one exception to that maybe in the book of James, but even that I'm not so sure about. Even when Paul calls himself the chief of all sinners, he's referring to his life before Jesus, not his current state in Jesus. So I'll say this as clearly as I can. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a saint, even if you don't act like it. Saint is not something that you earn by behavior, contrary to popular belief. Sainthood is not something that is given to a person after they've died. Sainthood is something that is uh, conferred on a person the moment they put their faith in Jesus. And that sinner identity, that sinner title is removed the moment you put your faith in Jesus. So I don't think that it's helpful if we go around calling each other, brothers and sisters, sinners. Because we're actually calling us, we're reminding people of our past rather than, it would be more helpful to refer to each other as saints, reminding each other of our present and our future, what God has called us into. Saint is actually what the, how the New Testament refers to followers of Jesus. It means a person who's been set apart by God. Now this is what's interesting. He calls them saints by calling. To these Christians in Corinth, he calls them saints. So you would expect well, they probably got it all together. He calls them saints. I mean, they must be like top-notch, exemplary, well-behaved, spirit-filled, mature Christians, right? (laughs) You would think. But as we go through, we're not gonna do it all today, but as you look through the rest of 1 Corinthians, you actually find out these saints were like saints gone wild. They were behaving badly, They certainly were not called saints because they had their act together. Despite the fact that they didn't have their act together, he calls them saints. Why does he call them saints? Because it's not about their behavior. It's about Jesus making them holy. So really quickly, we're not going to go through the whole book of 1 Corinthians, but I do have a slide that John Eric's going to throw up on the screen that just summarizes some of the issues that were in Corinth. Okay, here's some of the issues in order that they're addressed in the uh, 1 Corinthians. They were having arguments over which leaders to follow. Hold up. Arguments over which leaders to follow. Christians would never do that. Chapter 3, Paul addresses their immature and weak faith. He calls them babies. (laughs) This is why Paul ended died alone. 
He calls them babies. He says their faith is weak and immature. Chapters 5 and 6, he addresses sexual immorality in the church, a variety of types of sexual immorality in the church. We're going to spend a little bit of time on that in a moment. Chapter 6, he talks about Christians suing other Christians, taking each other to court over little things, you know, small claims court essentially. Chapter 7, they're confused about marriage. What does it mean? What's it look like? How's it supposed to work? He addresses that. Chapter 8, they're having arguments over food. What can I eat? What can I not eat? Because they come from this Jewish background with a bunch of laws about diet, and they're not sure how their new faith in Jesus applies to that. Chapter 11, they're doing favoritism during communion. The people with the most money get to go first. And if there's any food left, the poor people can have it. That's not how it's supposed to work in the church, so Paul has to correct that. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 are dedicated to their chaotic use of spiritual gifts. They got all the gifts. It says in chapter 1, you do not lack any gift. And chapter 12 outlines them, but then it just, yeah, but you've been doing all these gifts without love. Great, you have the gift of prophecy, but you don't love people, so you're just an annoying noise, a a loud clanging gong that everyone runs from. Chapter 15, doubts about the resurrection of Jesus. I don't know, guys. I don't know if I'd have called them saints. I'd have said, man, this is a dysfunctional congregation. But the apostle calls them saints. It's not about their behavior, actually. It's about their identity. It's about their place in Jesus. And he spends the entire book of 1 Corinthians saying, hey, you're saints. Act like it. Just like a person could say to their husband or to their wife, you're my husband, you're my wife, act like it. Just because you have a bad day as a spouse doesn't mean you're not married anymore. It just means you're not walking in your identity. When you have a bad day as a Christian, it doesn't mean you're not saved anymore. It just means that day you're not walking in your identity. Paul can't call them back to holy living if he's telling them you're unholy, you're unholy. That's actually the power of Paul's corrective words to them. He's like, hey, Jesus has made you holy, so, you know, be holy. If he said, you guys are a bunch of rotten sinners who are incapable of holiness, and also be holy, he'd be trapping them. But he's just, all he's doing is calling them to be who Jesus has made them to be. That's the power of this, this, uh, the rebuke in 1 Corinthians. So being holy changes your identity. And I think it'd be good if we thought of each other as saints in Jesus rather than sinners. If we're going to remind each other of sin, this is how we should say it. We are saints who occasionally sin. Okay? Does that make sense? Now, not only does being made holy change your identity, it does result in changed behavior. It results in actions being altered and shifts this is uh, identified in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. I just thought of, you know, throw a couple passages about sexual immorality in here to just keep it light today. No? Okay. Whew. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, 
but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So Paul lists these behaviors, and I don't know if you caught this list that I read, but he starts off and says, the, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So unrighteous is this umbrella phrase that he uses to refer to that list of behaviors that followed. So all of those behaviors were under the umbrella of unrighteous, and he says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what does inherit the kingdom of God mean? Does that mean like in the future they won't inherit the kingdom and they won't enter heaven, or does that mean in the present they won't receive the things of the kingdom and see God at work? It means both. It is both present and future. He's saying that those who practice these things, who live this way, who don't, uh, ever feel broken or convicted or contrite or repentant about these, these things, but those who give themselves to these things with a, without a second thought will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's go through this list of unrighteous acts uh, that prevent the inheriting of the kingdom of God. He says, fornication. So fornication is just sex with anyone you're not married to. That's a broader so adultery could be fornication. Premarital sex could be fornication. There's lots of different types of fornication. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate. This is actually referring to male prostitutes. Uh, that's what that's referring to. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers. Revelers uh, is just kind of like... Uh, wasting time, kind of lazy, busy bodies, nor swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a pretty broad list. Covers a lot of bases. Not all of it is sexual immorality, although some of it is. These list, acts are all listed as unrighteous. But in verse 7, he says this, such were some of you. Such were some of you. When they're made holy by Jesus, it results in a change in their behavior. It results in them living differently. All of a sudden, their actions are changed. Their thoughts are altered. Their actions follow those thoughts that are altered. And this list of sinful behaviors that would be preventing them from receiving the kingdom of God, all of a sudden, now they've changed and they're starting to see the kingdom of God in their day-to-day -day life, which gives them hope that they're going to receive this in the future. Some of them practice these things. The church in Corinth, I just want you to know, the church in Corinth had ex-former uh, adulterers, former idolaters, former drunkards. We would say it this way. The church in Corinth had people in recovery. The church in Corinth had people that left the homosexual lifestyle. The church in Corinth had co people that used to be sleep around and left. The church in Corinth had people who were you know, swindlers and liars, but because of their faith in Jesus were incorporated into the congregation and who are able to live a free and new life in Jesus. I want you to see that God's grace does not overlook sin. It transforms sinners. Sometimes we think about grace as like, oh, it's just God turning a blind eye at sin. Oh, he, God is gracious, so he ignores our sin. No, he doesn't ignore our sin. Grace is an empowerment to transform us and to get us to leave sin. Grace is like plugging us in and providing a little extra juice so that we can defeat sin. That's what grace is. It's not God's blind eye towards sin. It's his ability to transform sinners so that sin is reduced not by God ignoring it, but by him empowering us to live in holiness. Because their identity changed, their behavior followed. 
Is this making sense? He calls these people saints in chapter one. In verse six, he says, listen, I know some of your stories. You used to be this, you used to be that, but Jesus has changed you. You're a totally different person right now. I know it's in your past, I know it's in your background, but I know that it's also not in your present and it's not in your future because Jesus has changed you. You were, it says, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So being made holy changes our identity, it changes our behavior, and then we're gonna jump to 1 Thessalonians 5. Being made holy changes our entire being. If you have a Bible, go to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. It'll be up on the screen. I don't know that I've preached any verse more than this one verse in my entire life. Somehow, obscure random verse in the, the end of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5 says this. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way, Jesus is going to sanctify you entirely. Now, sometimes people will read that and think that means like, oh, so there's a perfection is expected. Entire sanctification means I'll achieve some state of sinless perfection. And this is what like Nazarene churches and some Methodist churches believe. But I think that that's not, I don't expect sinless perfection of you, and I hope you don't expect it of me. I think we're going to probably sin, hopefully less and less, and when we do sin, we're broken over it, we're we're repentant, but I I don't expect perfection. Here's what I think Paul is saying. It's not perfection, it's wholeness. You are going to be wholly sanctified. There's not an area of your life that is going to be untouched by Jesus' sanctifying work. You are going to be entirely, thoroughly, wholly sanctified. There's not uh, a closet that Jesus is not going to try to knock or get into. There's not an area of your life that he's going to leave untouched. Your sanctification is going to be entire. Why do I think that? Well, he kind of broadens it out. He says, well, your spirit, your soul, your body, would these things be sanctified before Jesus' Jesus returns? So he, he breaks it down, and this is how Paul thought of things. He thought of things in a th- like a three-part whole, a body, a soul, and a spirit. You are a spirit with a soul in a body. We often think body first, right? We, we, we think of, a, if, you, if I had to describe someone, I'd say, well, they look like this. Their hair is this color. They're tall. They're short, whatever. I would describe them by their body. I, I've never described anyone by their spirit. Oh, they're gentle and kind. I, would, I, would, I always think of describing their body, right? But Paul thought of you, would think of us, or actually Jesus would think of us as a spirit because we have a spirit before we even have a body. We have a spirit after we have a body. And then we have a soul, and I'm gonna try to explain these things really quickly. Your spirit is the essence of who you are. It is created in the image of God. It is given by God. I want you to think of when God made Adam and Eve and he uh, when God made Adam and he took all that dust and breathed into it, that breath is the same Hebrew word for spirit. Your spirit is the essence of who you are. Your spirit is actually what Jesus regenerates or causes to be born again when you come to Jesus. Your spirit is reborn. Your spirit grows to be more like Jesus. Your spirit 
is where your spiritual gifts operate from. Your spirit is where you primarily connect with God. Your spirit is where you discern what's happening in the spiritual world, whether it's the activity of God, the activity of human being, the activity of an angel, the activity of a demon. That takes place in your spirit. Your soul is different than your spirit. This might be push some of you to think about this. Your soul is not the same thing as your spirit. We think of two things, the physical and the non-physical. There's your body and then there's your soul spirit thing. But Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to the division of soul and spirit, like joint and marrow. Paul, uh, well, the author of Hebrews, who we don't know who that is, uses you're a joint and the marrow in your bones as an illustration for how your soul and spirit are distinct. The word of God penetrates to the division of soul and spirit. Furthermore, soul and spirit are two different words. If they were the same thing, there wouldn't be additional words. They're also used differently in the Bible. Your spirit is, like I said, your essence. Your soul, if you just did a big old study of what your soul was in the Bible, this is what you would find. Every use of soul can be put in one of three categories. It's either your mind your will, or your emotions. Or another way to say it would be your thoughts, your choices, and your feelings. Read through the, read through the writings of David. Read through the Old Testament. Read through the New Testament. The soul, my soul will rejoice. His soul was downcast. My soul chooses to bless you. It's, it's, your soul is where your thoughts happen. It's where your feelings take place. It's where your choices and your decisions come out of your soul. And then, of course, you have a body. I don't know that I need to get too into that because I think you all pretty much understand what a body is. That's your, your meat. <laughs> it's your skin. It's your organs. It's your blood. It's your bones. It's all of that stuff. It says in Romans 6 not to let sin reign in your bodies. That actually, even our sanctification, this, this being set apart by God applies to our bodies. It says in Romans 12 that we're present our, to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, the Lord is for your body and your body is for the Lord. Did you know that Jesus cares about your body? He ca- I think we all know he cares about our soul. He cares about our spirit. Jesus cares about your body. Your body was made for the Lord and the Lord is for your body. I've been talking uh, off and on the last couple months about something called divine healing and also divine health. Divine healing is I'm sick and I need God to heal me. Divine health is I want to stay healthy. I want to not let anxiety raise my blood pressure. I want to not let anger and fear rob me of sleep so that I'm always lethargic. I want to not use food as a coping mechanism. That's, so now we're talking about divine health, not necessarily divine healing. Jesus cares about your body. He wants to sanctify it. So again, let me read this passage. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. So he wants to sanctify your spirit. He does that by regenerating you or causing you to be born again. He wants to change your soul, so your thoughts, I mean, we don't, we know in, in Romans it says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, right? Where it says, I think it's in Ephesians, maybe it's not Ephesians, it says we have the mind of Christ. Sanctific- Jesus' sanctification, uh, sanctifying work in us applies to our thought life. It applies to the decisions, our will, 
The will is what makes your decisions. Part of sanctification is making the decisions Jesus would have us make, not selfish decisions. Even our emotions. But Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount off talking about grieving and forgiveness. I mean, his sanctifying work even touches our emotional life. And then, of course, our body as well. That we would not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. That we would present our body as a sacrifice, a, an alive sacrifice. We can do that through worship. We can do that through service. We can do that through maintaining purity. Now, while I'm talking about the spirit, soul, and body, and if you want to impress someone at Thanksgiving, this three-part view of things is called tri a trichotomy. So you can just drop that on the bus tomorrow on the way to work if you want. Oh, I was thinking about the trichotomy yesterday. And uh, maybe you'll get a free ride. Your spirit, your soul, and your body. So here's the thing. Your spirit is the core. Your spirit is the essence. I don't know if this will be helpful to you, but I just felt kind of like led to talk about this this week. Even when your body is asleep, your spirit is awake. Above my bedroom, we have a passage from Job. I think it's from Job that says, uh, as, as, my, as I slept, my spirit was awake. Even when you're, you know, I... I, for some reason, I like to look at like uh, I like to read about what happens when you go to sleep. You know, when you go to sleep, when you're in deep sleep, your body's paralyzed. That's why you you, you can't move. Some, you know, my two-year-old gets in bed with us, and I can tell when he's in deep sleep because if I pick his hand up, it just falls limp next to us. That's how I know he's in deep sleep. I have to look at his chest to make sure he's breathing because I'm the kind of guy that's going to roll over on a two-year-old. And uh, so, when you go to sleep. Your body goes limp. You, you know what your brain does when you're asleep? It sorts memories. It decides what, to, what memories to keep and what memories to throw out. What, kind, what things to store in your long-term memory and what things go sh in your short-term memory. Your body also cleans out toxins from your brain. So you, your body and your soul kind of go into this like maintenance mode, but during that whole time, your spirit is awake. That's why sometimes you see in the Bible people have dreams in the night. Their body is kind of motionless. Maybe their mind is unconscious, but God is still interacting with them. I love this story. You guys know the story probably. King Solomon. You know, Solomon was visited by God, and he said, uh, Solomon, if you could have anything, what would you have? And Solomon did not ask for fame. He didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for health. He asked for wisdom. And that's what Solomon is known for. Give me wisdom. I want to know how to rule. I want to know how to govern. Here's the interesting thing. That happened in a dream. That wasn't like he was in the temple and God showed up in the temple with angels and trumpets. He wasn't on a mountaintop. He was in bed, guys. But he was so possessed by the Holy Spirit, he was so focused on his mission that even in his sleep, he knew how to answer God correctly because his spirit is awake. And I want you to know that when you go to bed at night, your body goes to sleep, your, your brain and your mind do what they have to do, but your spirit is still awake. You can encounter God even in your sleep. So my suggestion is give your nights to God. You know, before you go to sleep, okay, Lord, if you're going to do something tonight, I'm open to that. I got to sleep. Sleep's not bad. I'm going to rest. But Jesus, my spirit is awake. Maybe there's things that you want to say to me. Maybe there's dreams you want to give me. Maybe there's ways you want to communicate with me. Maybe there's things you want to deal with. My spirit is awake even as I sleep. I saw this. 
I'll share this without permission. I saw this in Anna Wakeman when she was in a coma. And I, I, I knew that when I was visiting her, and some of you got a chance to visit her, that even when her body was in a coma, and even when her mind was unresponsive because of the coma, this is the incredible thing. She would still respond to prayer. She would still respond to worship. She would still respond to scripture. This was, and, and I didn't go in thinking this, but I came out remembering it. I didn't go in thinking, okay, we're going to stimulate her spirit. I wasn't thinking any of that, but on the way out, I was like, oh yeah, your spirit does not sleep. When your body is asleep and your mind is asleep, your spirit is still awake. And I would say, how are you doing? And I would get nothing. And I would tell a joke and get nothing, much like today. You guys all in comas or no? Okay. But when we would pray, she would perk up. And when I would get other people on the phone to pray with her, she would respond. That's the only stuff she would respond to is prayer, worship, scripture, until she came out of the coma. So, you know, I, I say that if you plan on being in a coma anytime soon, or, uh, but you're certainly going to go to bed tonight, right? You're certainly going to have times in your life where I just, I want to encourage you, give those seasons to God still. That is not wasted time. You have a spirit that's far more active than you even know. Okay, we're going to do communion in a moment, but I want to share this one final thing. How, does, how do we become holy? How does holiness go from Jesus to us? I want you to think of holiness as being contagious. And you contract it from Jesus. How'd you become so holy? Oh, yeah, I know, I was with Jesus, and you know, Jesus was talking, and because you know, I, I got my holiness from Jesus, I, that's how I have it. Now, all the stuff Jesus feels, I feel. You know, all the symptoms Jesus has, I have those symptoms. We actually, in theology, we call these, uh, we call some of the attributes of God communicable, which is a term you use for a disease that can be spread. The, the common cold is communicable. The COVID-19 is communicable. It's a disease that you can pass from one person to another. There are certain attributes of God that are communicable. Mercy, grace, love. These are co- what we would call communicable attributes of God because they come from God. They infect you. They are contagious. How do you get them? By being with Jesus who has these things. You catch holiness. It infects you. It's contagious. If you don't want to be holy, stay away from Jesus because he's going to infect you with holiness. You catch it. That way, because you catch holiness, because he infects you with it, you can't take any credit for it. But nonetheless, people will try to fake it. Did you ever, when you were a kid, fake a sickness, fake an illness to try to get out of school? I see some of you nodding. Okay, I'm taking notes here. How would you fake a sickness? You would try to mimic the symptoms, right? I have a cough. Maybe you'd put a warm compress on your head before your parents took your temperature. Maybe you'd go stand in a hot shower so you can get all clammy. You know, no, no one's ever done these things. No one ever does this to get out of church, but you have to preach anyway, so you go. No, no one's ever done these things. Okay. I mean, you can fake symptoms, right? And if you, 
if you don't get this concept that Jesus gives you holiness, you will try to fake holiness. Oh, that person seems holy and that's how they sing, so I'm going to sing the way they sing. Oh, that person seems holy and that's how they do it, so I'm going to, go, I'm going to wear the clothes they wear. I'm going to pray the way they pray, even though I definitely don't talk like that. I notice that when they pray, they pray in King James. So I want to pray in King James English. Oh, that person seems holy, and they raise their kids that way. They do their marriage that way. They give this much. They read this Bible. I'm going to, I want to try to mimic holiness, and you try to duplicate the symptoms, but you really haven't caught what they caught. The only way that you can catch what they caught is by being with Jesus. He's the one that spreads it. He is the super spreader of holiness. The only way you're going to catch holiness is by being in the presence of Jesus for prolonged periods of time. Does that make sense? This is not an outside-in experience. This is an inside-out experience. We spend time with Jesus. We get infected with his holiness. And then in some ways, we can infect other people with it. You can infect your neighborhood with holiness, understanding that you caught it from Jesus. This is something you worked up on your own. You can infect your neighborhood with holiness. You can infect your family with holiness. You can infect your workplace with holiness. It's contagious. You got it from Jesus. Now, there is a practice in the New Testament that reminds us of this holiness that we receive from Jesus. It is communion. If you want to grab your communion elements. The holiness that we have is purchased by Jesus and delivered from Jesus. He obtained it by paying a very, very large price his entire life. That's how he's able to infect us with holiness. That's how he's able to give us holiness. So when we take communion, we are proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes. When we take communion, we are to set aside time for reflection and asking Jesus to inspect us and put his finger on, put his eyes on things that we might need to confess and deal with. I think you know this already, but if you don't, the bread in the communion cup represents Jesus' body. The grape juice is his blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for us. We want to take communion with reverence because we are remembering the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm going to ask Glenn Miller. Glenn's one of our elders. Can I get a handheld mic? I forgot to get a microphone for Glenn. Glenn's going to come up and lead us in communion. He's actually going to lead us in reading our uh, uh, communion declarations. This is something we do once a month. They're going to be up on the screen. I'd like to ask you to read these along with Glenn, and then Glenn's going to pray for us. The team's going to lead us in worship. You have time. You do not need to rush this. Take some time. Ask Jesus to inspect you. Spend some time with the Lord. Make this an experience. And uh, the team's going to lead us in worship after Glenn prays. Go ahead, Glenn. Uh, Please stand and um, read this declaration with us. We believe that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We believe that in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
we declare that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. With reverence and solemnity, we declare that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. We advise that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Lord Jesus, we remember you in so many different ways. We remember you when we worship songs. We remember you with praise. We remember you uh, with honor and glory. But this this declaration came right from you, Lord. So when you do this in remembrance of me, Lord, so when we take this bread, which represents your body, when we take this uh, juice, which represents your blood, um, let us just do this. Let us not take this lightly as uh, about the holiness of things. Let us set this aside as a holy time with you. So, Lord Jesus, as we um, prepare, move in the hearts of those who are seeking you now, Lord. And we just pray all this today in Jesus' name. Amen. But 
this I know it all my heart His wounds have paid my ransom Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer But this I know with all my heart His wounds have paid my ransom His wounds have paid my As you go out this week, you may be wondering, so what can I do then to walk in holiness, live in holiness, practice holiness? So here's something practical. Because you you might want to go and just like uh, cancel Netflix, you know, change your radio station, delete an app off your phone that you're definitely going to put back on by the end of the week. You might want to do all that stuff. Here's my suggestion. Get near Jesus. If you can get near Jesus and let that holiness seep into you, so in worship, prayer, Bible study, whatever, take communion at home, silence, whatever you, whatever you can find to do, if you'll let his holiness seep into you, you'll find that all this other stuff, it falls off of you. It just like, it has nothing to root into and it just slides off. Anything you do in your own power, it's just, it's temporary. But if you, res- if you let the holiness of Jesus penetrate you, this stuff it has nothing to hold on to and it just slides right off. Does that make sense? So f- be near Jesus. Find ways and times and opportunities to be near Jesus and watch how this happens from the inside out. Jesus, as we spend time with you this week, even, Lord, even if in our, in our weakness and limitation we only have a couple moments a day, would you make the most of that time to transform us from the inside out? Jesus, we want to catch what you have. We know that your, your holiness is given to us through the Holy Spirit, that we catch it from you. Would you help us to catch it this week in our moments with you, in our times with you, to receive holiness and to, to, to know that our identity has been changed so that then we can walk in holiness, seeing our behaviors change and seeing us made whole and holy entirely, our body, our soul, and our spirit. I ask that, Jesus, in your name, amen. I want to thank you for coming today and joining us. I know you got here in the heat. It's going to be hotter when you leave, so feel free to stick around for a little bit. And otherwise, we'll see you next Sunday. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.